Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The kind of art that Xavier Cortada creates makes the abstract feel real, instead of the other way around. He tackles big issues with his work. But how do you make visual art when you're trying to say something about sea level rise or gentrification? That's one reason Xavier was named Miami-Dade County's first artist in residence. He wants to take on the big issues that affect his South Florida home with his art. One project he calls Underwater Homeowners Association. He paints beautiful numbered signs that South Florida art fans install in their yards. They show just how many feet their homes are above sea level and what even one foot of rising water could mean. In another, he asks inland residents to plant mangrove seedlings in their yard, a plant that usually grows at the water's edge. The implication is the water is coming. Yeah, it starts some pretty interesting conversations. Xavier wants to make society's big problems tangible, to make the invisible visible. Xavier's been making art that speaks to South Florida and the world for decades. So let's speak to him about the art he hopes can make a difference. Welcome, Xavier. Hey, Carlos. Thanks so much. So honored and happy to be here with you and your listeners. Well, I, you're, you've been making work that is uh, relevant to society in general, specifically to South Florida, but around the world for, for decades, mm -hmm. you know? And yep. And you're doing something now that's, um, you're in a position now, which I find is interesting. You know, Miami-Dade County has its first artist in residence. And and what a time to bring in someone who's really thinking about issues that affect the climate, which is so much of your work. And that's that's what I find so fascinating. Yeah, climate is everything. Mm. Full stop. I mean that. Everything wow. is climate. Right now, you can't order soup without tech, right? Like you have to, it's hard to do anything without <laughs> technology. It's scalars everywhere. Right. Well, climate is like that. Climate will be like that for every person listening and their children and their great-grandchildren and so on, except it's going to become more and more immersed into every function of our lives, every single thing we do, what job you take, um, where you choose to live. And Miami, unfortunately, uh, is ground level for this existential crisis we have called sea level rise. Right, right. Um, and I think your, your your listeners, all of us, I think, have been aware of this for a while, but what really kills me is how we don't act on it, right? Like, mm. we understand that the water is coming. We understand that unlike a hurricane, it won't recede, right? A hurricane, there's a storm surge, horrible things happen at that point. But the, you know, the, the, the water recedes, and then... Stupidly, we go back and rebuild in the same places. We just saw that happen uh, with Ian in Fort Myers, mm. right? Where Charlie came 10 years later, Ian came, dozens died, right? So what I find absolutely mind-boggling is how we continue to do stupid things. How you go to Zillow and property values continue going through the roof. How we um, continue building buildings in vulnerable locations. Mm. And uh, we as a society sort of delude ourselves into thinking that everything is going to be okay. And you, and you do something with your art, which is you kind of, you try to shake people out of that delusion. Yeah. Right? You try to make, and, and again, the, the challenge is always, how do you make something that, I mean, even 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 a, something like sea level rise or you know uh, climate change can feel so abstract, but you make it in a way where it actually relates to people right away. Like um, 
the uh, the the sea level rise project, the the underwater sure, homos, sure, sure. the underwater HOA uh, project, which is yeah, yeah. So those were those were yard signs uh, in front of people's homes. But you know, most yard signs, you know, say for sale or for rent or, or vote for vote for Pedro or vote for Pedro or you know <laughs> or you know like curb your dog. You know, it says right. anything but you know uh, a number that basically, in a very revealing, vulnerable way, tells you. Uh, the risk that you're at. And and it's not just me putting it in your home, it's you putting it in your home, which means that you have enough agency, uh, your curiosity has been piqued, you've understood the problem enough to be able to be the eco-emissary when your neighbor across the street says, hey, what's that number four in your front lawn? You now are the trusted person who is similarly situated, literally at the same level in the same shoes in the same street standing on the same asphalt as a person across the street who may be a climate denier who may be ideologically different from you but who has the same flooding issues you do will have the same flood insurance consequences that you do and has the same um, political um, uh, numbers right like the districts and mm -hmm. the commission districts and the state rep districts and the state senate districts that you do so that maybe both of you can start thinking about ways that you can vote in your own self-interest and I I did that project because <clears throat> forever I don't know if you remember my reclamation project where I would take people and plant mangroves all over Biscayne Bay back in the 2006 okay. uh, as a way of getting people to help uh, you know build ecosystems above and below the waterline building mangrove uh, forests um, that effort is uh, an effort about others it's uh, about community it's about ecosystems about marine life about sequestering carbon about mitigation about biodiversity uh, loss right but the, but the underwater is about your property value. Yeah. It's about how much is your child going to get when they inherit your home 30 right. years from now. And wherever it, wherever it happens to be, uh, over or above the water. But that requires you to have a conversation, for people, yeah. for a homeowner, to have a conversation with you, to yeah. be a, for you to have a conversation with the community. In other words, you're not sequestered away in a studio creating a thing that you then put out to the world and then you kind of don't pay attention to. This requires having a conversation with your, your community yeah. to get I, people to, yeah. to my, <laughs> people that see the world in the same way to, to buy in. Absolutely. My easel wears pants and skirts. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I spend more time, you go to my Instagram account, good luck finding a painting. All you see are pictures of me in front of people, engaging them, inspiring, talking, challenging them with one another and that's called socially engaged art at right. the end of the day that's what I do the medium uh, what I do with my art is is communicate ideas and the medium that I use is society to do that and in many ways that's the the effort here it's a it's a it's a performance art project it is absolutely yeah. performative work it is engaged work it is interdisciplinary work um, and it involves infiltrating all sorts of systems including county government Right, literally including um, universities, including school systems, having people understand that there's an artist in the room, having everyone understand that they too are artists, that each and every one of us have creativity in us, and that if we can tap into that creativity, something that using art allows us to do. You know, uh, I, I work a lot with scientists, and scientists are great at jargon, right? Because they know they know their science, so they take shortcuts. 
but those shortcuts are intellectual pathways that they use to talk about known things. Right, and like I think a nomenclature, it, right? when you're talking about shortcuts, and where I they think, to speak to I each other. And I think that stifles the path, it, it keeps you on the same pathway that everyone agrees on. So what I try to do as an artist is I try to shake that up. I try to put you in this interstitial space where now you have to talk to me and use a language that's not your own. But it's not just me. It's also that policymaker in the same conversation. And I think by having all of us think differently, reframe the way we think, try to communicate in different ways, I have seen that that is where innovation happens. That's where new ideas take hold. How do we speak the same language? Right. That's ultimately what I, you're doing. Yeah. Let's get us all speaking the same language. And, and talk to things that we care about mm -hmm. and and a little while ago you talked about and I I love the, the idea of these abstract thoughts if they were abstract I'd be okay with it that'd be an easy challenge it's not that they're abstract it's that they're abstract and then there is the spectacle created by society that even try to prohibit you from explaining or addressing that abstraction and by that Give I me mean an example yeah by that I mean simply our consumer culture by that I mean greenwashing by that I mean the real estate industry that keeps on telling us that everything is going to be okay by that I mean um, uh, uh, policies that uh, incentivize growth without thinking of the consequences of how that growth is going to be managed by generations to come. I want to I want to ask you about that particular because part of the project you did is you, you know you're talking about you're having people pay attention to elevations like how close we are with like if we had a 10 foot sea level rise oh, over. what over. what that would mean and and what I found yeah. that you did interesting is you worked with high school students. Oh yeah yeah yeah. and you painted at major intersections those these beautiful paintings that showed a number yeah. and that's what the elevation was at those numbers so now it goes out of people's yards and we're literally moving around in these spaces but yeah. you were talking about realtors and developers and property values and not everybody loved that idea oh no and no, no it's hard look we're we're a society and i and i get it look the the big spectacle the big goliath mm -hmm. the big goliath in the room is self-interest and greed Right? Mm. That's the big Goliath. Instant gratification is the big Goliath. The here and now culture that can't think a generation away, much less you know, you know, 10 years away from us. Right, That's the problem. And we're conditioned that way. At, at the business level, we think in quarters. We think in fiscal years. Mm. At the uh, uh, ballot box, we think of two-year election cycles, four, mm -hmm. six if you're a senator. But it's really, it's a- it's Two if a, you're lucky. If to, you right, two if you're people, lucky, unless- You get you know, people you, thinking that way, right? right? So Right, unless you get-, um, unless you get uh, your term, uh, uh, um, unless you get kicked out of office by a governor who doesn't like your politics, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it would be a four-year cycle. Which has happened. Which has happened at least yeah. in two, uh, uh, you know, sort of district attorney's offices across uh, our state up in, in the Tampa Bay and in Orlando. You're, you pay a lot of attention to, you're talking about these issues that, are, that we're facing as, you know, environmentally, but you pay a lot of attention to social issues specifically. It's these, all one thing. These things that become uh, these culture wars that, that try yeah. to distract from our city going underwater. It's all one like thing. Like you're saying, right? last night, uh, you know, we weren't yeah. we weren't on the air because of the school district meeting, and and uh, and you know, and it was a whole issue about whether we were just going to acknowledge that it was going to be an LGBTQ month. We we're just going to acknowledge that folks exist. And, yeah, that wasn't a meeting. That and I know a, that you, that touched the nerve. That, with you. Oh, it touched the nerve. That wasn't a meeting. That was a disgrace. That was a spectacle in cowardice or bigotry. One or the other. Take your pick. Those five individuals, I don't even know their names, uh, but the five individuals who voted to deny a 16-year-old the right to self-dignity, those five elected officials, um, engaged in an act of extreme 
cowardice or bigotry and there's no other way around it no way of rationalizing we're really good at rationalizing and a second ago I told you that it's just it's all part of the same thing it's that idea of domination that idea of wanting uh, to control right and in many ways um, that's what people who have power try to do to keep that power and what I try to do in this big spectacle whether it's commodity whether it's um, a big industry that's just trying to push things like creating a water park called Wildlands in the middle of the last remnants of wilderness in Miami. Right, right? this is happening right next right door to, na- to right the zoo. Right next to the zoo, right? Yeah. Whether it's trying to build an Amazon warehouse in a uh, uh, South Dade neighborhood that literally floods, that's at four feet above sea level, uh, so that you continue pushing forward with instant gratifications, rationalizing your decisions with false choices about jobs versus not jobs, continue polluting Biscayne Bay and engaging in fish kills, not understanding that the jobs that are going to be lost aren't necessarily the owners of the hotels, but it's the busboys and, um, and housekeepers who will not have jobs when tourists don't want to rent a waterfront hotel that looks at a green pea soup where an algal bloom now reigns over where there used to be pristine beautiful waters and you know and you obviously are are so in tuned and so uh, aware of these issues and that's and that's where you turn your art is to comment on these issues our guest today is the artist xavier cortada he's miami-dade county's first artist in residence and a professor at the university of miami Xavier, these these issues that you really you take on with your art. There's a lot of ways that people express the the things in society that they want through their art, and and I'm curious where this comes from. In other words, who taught you about the impact of art? My um, uncle Eddie Cortada and my dad Carlo Cortada were both Cuban refugees. They got here in 1962. My dad was 22 years old. Uh, they were both artists. They were both artists. Uh, my uncle had a little UNESCO scholarship. I know he went to Brazil while he were, they were still in Cuba. He came to Miami. And, you know, you have nothing here, so you start doing what you can. I, I still have stories where they said they would make collage paintings using a powdered milk because they couldn't afford gesso. I mean, it was that kind oh, of... powdered milk instead of yeah, gesso. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, 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 I still have some of, um, of the paintings that my uncle did on the back of, like, cardboard boxes. You know, like, you know what I mean? You don't have materials. You don't have money. You're literally a Cuban refugee, and you're trying to make it work. So you have memories of... Tell oh, me about those memories. Like oh, yeah, of, no. Of being no, no. They're, they're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful memories of, of uh, two two young Cuban artists, part of a, a dialogue in Miami um, in the early 70s. So I, I was uh, born in 1964 in Albany, New York, but by 1967, all of us were back here in Miami, living here in so Miami. So you were, you were American-born in 64. American-born, um, and Miami, the only place I've called home, I was two and a half years old, the only place I've ever called home is Miami. What, so, what, what brought you to New, what brought your family to New York? Uh, they jobs, making, right, they jobs. Remember, these, no, these are poor people. My dad was a janitor. They, 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 he got a job at a, at a Protestant school in Albany, so there they went. You know, it was early on in the, in, in 62, early on. They're trying to place, you know, people in place. Mom and mom and dad made it met at the at the basement of Jesu Catholic Church. At that basement, they had, uh, you know, refugee settlement stuff. So I, I know that they were doing um, here in downtown Miami. Here in downtown, yeah, the that, one right down the street from us. Yeah, uh, it's now a parking Beautiful lot, but church. that was my my that was my elementary school, and I think in many ways, uh, 
there's a, a lot of things that happen as a child. So I, I remember as a child going to that elementary school and seeing Vietnam vets in, in wheelchairs right outside the doors of, of the school, right beneath our Corinthian columns, and talk to me. You know, mm-hmm. I remember this particular one, I'm sure he's Passons, who had an alcohol issue, and we were sort of scared of him, but at the same time talked to him, you know, as little children, as little elementary school kids. And then I was an altar boy, out of all things, and I saw all of Miami there on the daily after-school mass, you know, uh, come to Miami, the homeless. I remember this... Uh, a woman much later on, Ann Ford, who I love very much, a homeless woman. She was a nurse. She went to St. Peter and Paul's, and you know she lived her lives in the streets of being beat up by people. And wow. again, uh, so you you see the texture of 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 a Miami in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. Uh, afterwards, I went to Miami High. So you 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 were very in tuned with the things, not just like with your the quotidian of life. You were seeing people who were at that level, at the edges, and at, that some and, of that must have come from your from your the art making background. Oh, hundred percent. It's it's a couple of life, things right? that that converge, and I think it's really important. Uh, in many ways, I didn't know what. Uh, socially engaged art or even eco art was. I used art as a way of solving social justice problems or environmental problems. It turns out that they had names for these things. Who taught but, you but, to but do but that? My, but my, way, it, it, like, life taught me how to do huh. that. So look, I, as a kid, my dad and my uncle had a small gallery on 17th and Coral Way called Galeria Cuadro. And that was the epicenter for young Cuban artists, poets, thinkers, philosophers to come and talk about Cuba. I remember one day there was a show and there was some dis- there was some dissent around something someone said and the entire the entire room cleared out. It was very volatile. But it was a, a pl- room full of artists. A room full of artists, you know, and it was political. It was talking it's always about political prisoners, about Castro, about uh, about the diaspora, about about human rights, right? About the the things that that's what I grew up with, and and second with that, I uh, I went to the Ermita de la Caridad. That was a Catholic boy then. I'm no longer, but I went to the Ermita de la Caridad, which is where then Father Roman, eventually Bishop Roman, who mm-hmm. I think many Miamians uh, know, we're, we're lit- to, sure. literally built that um, that shrine on the sea, and that's where a lot of the connections between the diaspora, between the new exiles, would come in. Literally. You come in as a refugee by boat, and you are there at the shores of Biscayne Bay meeting other Cubans and being integrated into society. In fact, that's the enclave. That's the story of Miami, of Little Havana. About and, and these are the kind of things that, you're, that your family was making art about, right? Was, like, they, were, like they were commenting on these things with, uh, so with their art. So art always had, art always had a purpose. It had a job to do. It was about a message. It was about convening and building community. So were I there, always understood that. Were there pieces or, or performance pieces that you remember that impacted you? Well, I remember that, that for the longest you? time, my uncle and my dad would do stuff like for the Miami Herald Hispanic Heritage Months, and there were these paintings of, of you know the 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 idyllic life in Cuba, the 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 you know the uh, medio puntos, the 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 Victorian chairs, a black and white tile, you know, sort of very traditional. But idyllic there was also images. the my dad's paintings were a lot uh, about the. Um, the, the the what what was what was missing the the nostalgia of what was absent and a lot of his works were these surreal things that were just sort of falling and breaking apart but that alone didn't do it i think it was uh later on when i went to miami high uh i went to miami high from 1979 to 1982 i'm the class of 82 and mariel landed at our high school literally the kids from mariel Landed at our high school early on, right in, in the that, middle of your in, of in your the school? middle of my freshman mm-hmm. year, 
And the good of Mariel happened, but that was also tense city. Miami could not absorb the asylum seekers the way it does today. We had 200,000 asylum seekers from Cuba come to the county just last year. You hardly noticed. But if you remember Mariel... In a small town. In 160,000 back sure. then, plus the, 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 the folks that Castro let out of his jails, right? It was like a, a lot of violence that happened in the street coupled, right, with the cocaine cowboys, the drug wars that were happening. So I saw all of that in Miami. I saw people literally, friends of mine, who were murdered, right? Wow. As a child, you know, as a child in Miami High. Wow. And I also worked at Jackson Hospital in the burn unit. And that, I think, is probably the most significant one. Because as a 16-year-old, I saw burn patients. I saw... Uh, people who tried to commit suicide. I saw more gunshot wounds that you could imagine. And instead of shying away, I leaned in. I dressed those wounds, but I also spoke to those people. I understand the context of Miami. Were and, you were you making art during that time, and did that influence? I have, you? I've always been making art, and um, I think a lot of I think a lot of the art that I made early on is the kind of stuff that you have in adolescent fervor, right? The the stuff that you're feeling, you know. But like what it, what kind of things? You know, like maybe like I remember the I painted a, a, a little pink. Who are you and stuff like that? But, it's a, mm. but the, the beautiful thing about art too is, is that it's therapeutic, and those those times I'm I'm um, pointing you outwardly how a lot of trauma existed outside of mm -hmm. uh, of Miami Dade uh, across Miami Dade County, but also those are very turbulent times for me as a child. I I grew up in a house with a lot of domestic violence between mm. mom and dad, mm. and again instead of uh, going out and hiding in a room. I was the peacemaker. I was the guy literally who was trying to stop the abuse happening before my eyes. And I think in many ways that coupled with what I saw externally in the community allowed me to say I can either be victimized by this or I can try to be a change agent. And since then, my entire life, it's been about looking at a problem and trying to find something as impossible as two parents beating each other up. Mm. How do you solve that? Well, as a, big, a society a a built, beating wow. itself up yeah. by electing despots and electing fascist people into office and having society literally litter itself, pollute itself to death by pumping carbon in the atmosphere. How do you solve that crisis, That's, that destruction? So you see me as, as an artist trying to find creative approaches to take something that's really horrible and have people understand that we need to make it better. So you were processing those things, you were creating art to relate it to those things already in your yeah, life. Yeah, as, as a you know, as a college kid, I, I wasn't gonna go to art school. Remember, they had a gallery, it wasn't profitable. You know, my dad was a school teacher, my, you know, I, it, was, it was sort of hard to, to, to uh, try to understand that art was a, a career so I went to the University of Miami I studied science and then law and a bunch of other subjects along the psychology a bunch of subjects along the way but every single one of those books is doodled with art every single one of them and um, my first job and while I was at the university I created a drug rehab center with a Jesuit priest Regis House I was the founder of that center I chaired the youth gang task force for the city of Miami always been really involved so there's so no you were, art you were definitely involved in social issues beyond the art like you were actually uh, right. trying to make a difference uh, yeah, outside, outside of, of the, the art, art wasn't a part of it, is my point. And mm. I then found art 
Tell as, me about that. Tell me yeah, about I that. You know, I think one of the most significant situations was in Soweto, South Africa. So I had been doing all this work with the University of Miami uh, right out of uh, law school. So my first job out of law school was uh, director of juvenile violence and delinquency prevention programs at the University of Miami. And that wow. really dealt with trying to do some prevention, uh, multi-systemic family therapy and prevention with kids working with, with gangs. I, I, I did a lot of work with kids in Wynwood right after those Wynwood disturbances. So like, so like that idea of violence in your family, you, you took that you sure. took that and started working with other kids and other, other kids who other, were in similar situations of, of violence in their and, homes. And, and over the years, early on, working with the children and youth um, law clinic at the University of Miami, kids in psychiatric facilities, working mm -hmm. with kids all over Miami-Dade County in the juvenile justice system, kids in foster care. I mean, there's a whole body of work in the 90s. But the art-based of that work, I think, happened in Soweto. I was giving speeches, right? I was training trainers. So initially, all you over traveled Latin to South Africa. Initially, it was in Latin America. I did a lot of training in Bolivia and in Central America, trying to t train trainers on how they could use methodologies to help their communities, kids who are street children and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. here's an academic wearing a suit and tie in the middle of, and a very young one at that. I'm still in, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still in my 20s in Latin America. I turned 30 uh, going to, to Africa. So as a 30-year-old, I'm here in Soweto, South Africa. Apartheid had just ended, and I'm at the Ipaleg Center. Uh, in the U.S. Embassy brought some kids who were having substance abuse and uh, justice issues. And I couldn't communicate with them. There was this Zulu dialect translator, and I was trying to go back and forth. And I, I was already thinking of myself as an artist, but not as a artist who used art to address social issues. I was ah, there as a as a, a know, social a, agent, right? Right. Yeah. So what happens? We start drawing, and the kids start drawing, and all of a sudden, at that moment, there in 1994, I start seeing that art has a role. Mm. So that's what I'm saying. Art became this little rock that helped, Goli you know, that helped take down Goliath, right? Art became the vehicle that did that. So I came back to the U.S., and that's when you see me start doing all these murals with kids in adult prison, AIDS murals galore. The back AIDS then, thing, the obviously, AIDS, yeah. Af Africa was, I mean, at the center and continues to be um, uh, a topic of conversation when you talk about the AIDS epidemic. So yeah. you come back with that, and AIDS is in America, and right? AIDS, and, and that becomes a, a right a here part with that the, you the AIDS well. walks in Miami. Back then, it was '97. I uh, remember being really involved with Save Date and with the Health Crisis Network, two really important agencies. Save Date is still obviously fighting the fight with us. Uh, how did how did working with those kids? What happened there? How did working with them really just? Turn that light on for well. Them. It just it, I just saw that there was a, a a really so normally when you give a when you give a, a lecture it's a I mean you can be inter interactive but it's a really passive thing right mm -hmm. it's unidirectional right mm -hmm. but just like I told you a few minutes ago about the scientists in the in the room with the other people mm -hmm. you go into this different place first of all it's disarming mm. so I took that gift that those kids had given me and then I took it to psychiatric facilities and to juvenile justice centers using art cancer for, uh, for 10 years I created murals with children who had just been diagnosed with cancer painting murals and creating them, art together together with them, but having also that conversation and with their the siblings right so art was disarming you're sitting there you're drawing paintings but now you're talking about the pain that you're feeling but art is this universal language that takes you out of sight of yourself and puts you in community with others? And how did and when you came back, why, 
what happened personally that the AIDS epidemic affected you? Because so many of these things are, it feels like they're very connected to you. Talk to me about why that became such a subject yeah. that was like really a first big blip for you in your, in your Yeah, well, career. that was 98. There were bigger blips yeah. to do with juvenile justice. So it started with mm -hmm. juvenile justice. Mm -hmm. If you see my very, very early work, the, my very first mural was in Leadville, Colorado with immigrants. It was, uh, I was working, um, I was a part of a joint together fellowship. Again, fellowship has nothing to do with art. And there was a guy who worked for the... Uh, the DA in Leadville, Colorado, who said, hey, we're having trouble with recent Mexican immigrants and those that have been here for five generations. Could you come and solve this? So I went to Leadville hmm. and created the Hand in Hand mural, which was an excuse to get people to talk to one another about the similarities. So that was, again, that literally that was 95, three or four months after I arrived. So much of, the, of your art is that getting people oh, it's, to it's talk to It's about coming together to talk to one another, reframe things, seeing each other differently, right? So here, hand in hand, we're all one, com literally, you're literally genetically, we're all one people, right? So I, I think you saw that early on. Mm -hmm. um, I came out um, in uh, the early 90s and I saw a lot of, you know, sort of discrimination and hate happening, you know, ac across the community, like it manifested itself in a really brutally ugly way what last you, night at, you, at, oh. the, at the school board meeting, that, mm -hmm. that absolute lack of uh, love that we have in our society, that ability to just uh, throw people away. And I mean, the, the, the kind of... the, the 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 it wasn't just the five people who voted the way they did but it's the people in the audience who are okay with it the people in the audience who aren't infuriated by their action i remember the in the during the aids uh, epidemic the pandemic people talked about silence equals death mm. and in many case in many ways the silence of people in miami-dade county against the absolute um, attack on our black brothers and sisters by trying to erase uh, the history, the history of slavery and pain and, and, um, and uh, uh, well, your, your work the is debasement like, right. of, of, of African Americans in our society for centuries is insulting not just mm -hmm. to African Americans, but to all of us. Right. And for us to be silent about that well, there's there's an element where it seems like your your art is tries to get people talk going from talking past right, each other, right. right, or just getting up and, and giving a speech, you know, and having yeah. your your two minutes to give your speech, and and you end up talking past each other. But with yeah. the art, forces you to to kind of meet and talk about one thing. Yeah, you see me right. wear a red shirt here because you've got angry Xavier. Normally, I'm not <laughs> so uh, on the attack mode. I try to build bridges and try to find ways of doing that. But you know what? Um, you saw me talk a little bit about the, the experience of the Cuban diaspora. I remember as a, as a, as a child, uh, my grandmother, I, I knew every single street corner of Nuevita Camaway. Hmm. I knew every little fishing cove. From the stories. From the stories in the rocking chair as a child. You know, and I, I also understand the trauma that I personally suffered as a child because of people who have been displaced, right? Whose realities had been completely destroyed. Everything they had was abruptly taken from them and all the mental health consequences that come with that. I, I am the personification of the pain of an exile refugee experience. And I am so defrauded, so defrauded by my Cuban brothers and sisters who allow themselves to be defrauded by the fraud of Donald Trump. I cannot 
understand. I cannot understand how my Cuban brothers and sisters, those that support a guy who will soon be a felon, a guy who literally um, is bigoted, a guy who uh, uh, <laughs> has been indicted on 91 counts, a guy who personifies the idea of totalitarian state, how those very people who suffered, who lost it all, and who prayed with me at La Ermita de la Caridad del Cobre, Virgencita Salva Cuba, can somehow support someone who not only is a climate denier, but someone who denies basic human rights. And to me, I, silence equals death. But my part, God, I, if I, you're, I, I hate that you're silent, but you're proactive, you're literally voting, and you're standing here in front of our school board antagonizing and attacking the gay community, the same community that the UMAPs in Cuba, you know, tortured and put gay people in prison just because they were gay. You don't see the thread. You don't see the line. So I've lived this. I've seen the violence that occurs when people just, you know, sort of retreat to the shelters of their insular families, when they retreat to, well, how is this going to impact me, where they retreat to the here and now. And the Goliath I'm trying to fight is the Goliath that prohibits us from loving one another. And, and the, the rock that I use is art right. to break through that spectacle. Yeah, the, the, the stone you throw in, I know in a lot of your work on your website, you can see that a lot of the work you get into is, is political as well. Yeah. Our guest today is the artist Xavier Cortada. His artwork highlights the threat of climate change while presenting solutions. Xavier, I want to ask you about, you know, obviously you, these so much of the you take on these kind of some topics that become politicized like the climate obviously climate the argument over climate has become politicized what have you found in your work that helps overcome these political arguments and then to become actual solutions yeah so in many ways um i try to reframe ways that make them personal to individuals and uh i i find that at the end of the day, everyone really wants to love and support one another. I really, I really believe and I have hope in us as a human species. I love endangered species. My favorite species on planet Earth are human beings. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they really are. Uh, yes, our capacity to think is remarkable. So much so that we have been able to think of ourselves as non-biological beings, but our DNA is made up of the same DNA of everything that has ever lived, will ever live, uh, or currently lives on planet Earth. And we need to be aware of that as we look at places where there are uh, water scarcity issues. And I'm not just talking well, about Arizona sure. losing its water. I'm talking about Miami-Dade uh, losing its freshwater aquifer with um, salination of water. Sure, the ri the the rising right uh, with that thanks to the rising just, seas mm -hmm. and 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 to me what I have found is is I I use art as a way of helping us reframe the way we think. And right now you, you've you've got me in a hot moment because I'm I'm just sort you know with all the all that's happening politically sure. I am I am sort of losing my cool if you will <laughs> happily so but I'm losing my Climate cool but in my in my artwork studio. in my artwork what I really try to do is is find the common ground especially almost exclusively with those who disagree with me well let's talk about some of your yeah. projects and, and so how look, you've done I, that. I, uh, all over Hialeah I remember I was in Hialeah during the, the Paris talks and I was trying to work with 
the community to help them understand how it was happening, you know, at a United Nations Conference of the Parties meetings in 2015, you know, an ocean away. Right, the climate had anything agreements. To, yeah, the climate agreements had anything to do with the people of Hialeah. And, of course, we started talking about flooding. And we started talking about the property values and the flood insurance. We also, uh, so what I did is I created an entire art exhibit at the Mylander Center, right, where I put my art. And the, the purpose of that art was to, to, to inspire just the beauty of art, just the aesthetic idea that you come in and you reflect on the painting. But that's a hook. That's something I try to meet my audiences, you know, where they are. So, you know, you don't start with a discourse. You start with what's, what's common to them. So if it's painting a mural, I'll paint a mural with you. If it's looking at a painting, if it's, you know, so you start by just bringing them in and trying yeah, to create like with we, beauty. If we try to get people in the office, we, you know, we, we bring uh, coffees and donuts. You know, like <laughs> right? Come in so for you, coffees you, and donuts you, you, to start. You bring in there. And there's nothing, I mean, look, one of the most beautiful things, that, and I don't take enough time doing it, is just to, to be creative and to just use color. And, and to. I remember as a child sitting with my dad and, and painting next to him as he was painting and being his art critic, right? And hmm. we're, so th there's beauty and... and um, and worth, absolute worth, in being an artist the way one traditionally thinks of an artist. What you're seeing in front of you is an artist that understands the power of art to be so much larger than what happens in the four corners of a stretched canvas, right? What, what do you feel is like is one of your proudest moments with your art? Because if you've come to someone who can just make beautiful art and it's just something to look at, you know, that could hang in a bathroom and not yeah. think about it. But have, have there, what have been the moments that you've been the most proud of that you've seen art make a change in a way that that is rewarding to you and it feels yeah. tangible you know i think the reclamation project is is it that was a project tell that me about that yeah reclamation project is you know my my de my desire to figure out how to address uh you know wet you know wetlands here in miami and it's how i pioneered eco art in this community and how did so, you do that tell so years ago that, that so years piece. ago uh working with hands on miami i had 800 volunteers paint those columns on on 395 here in downtown Miami, just close to our studio. Mm -hmm. The bridge is coming down, but those columns are painted as a metaphoric reforestation of um, Miami-Dade County, sort of bringing these little mangrove seedlings. And back then I was thinking of a mangrove as an immigrant, right? Like mm. a little mangrove floating until it sets its, you know, it sets its roots on a bank and then it starts creating uh, landmass. So it was a metaphor for the experiences of immigrants in Miami-Dade County. Again, that enclave that Alejandro Portes so brilliantly writes about when he talks about how this city was built. And I, um, and, but I, as I was doing that process of using mangroves as a metaphor for uh, community, I understood the importance of mangroves as a way of protecting our community, literally. So that led to a beyond the an metaphor, actual, into a, an yeah. actual reforestation. Mm -hmm. So we started. I started by putting mangroves in water-filled cups all over Lincoln Road, mm -hmm. the very locations where mangroves used to be before they were torn to develop uh, uh, the the community. And that it's, was it's prompted that, by a drive idea. to the Florida Keys. Right. As they extended the 18-mile stretch in the Florida Keys, they destroyed 18 linear miles of mangroves to create an extra lane. And I wow, imagine... they destroyed 18 miles of, yeah, of, to, of mangroves. Yeah, they, remember, there and were a lot of head-on collisions, lanes. so yeah. they had to widen it, right? So 18 linear miles of mangroves. And I would drive down, and I would see mile upon mile of mounds of mangroves just, you know, sort of cut down. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, years from now, people aren't going to realize that this, you know there used to be an ecosystem right here. Just like they don't realize that Miami Beach was a wetland. And like every other 
place of this beautiful bay that we have barricaded with concrete seawalls used to be wetlands. And that has and that has costs. And that has serious consequences right. today as uh, as we try to figure out what a living shoreline can do. Anyway, so what I did is I brought mangroves, put them as vertical nurseries all over Lincoln Road and Miami Beach, 2,500 of them in the first year. And then um, those volunteers that collected the mangroves would then plant them uh, on Virginia Key and Biscayne Bay. But the beauty of that project is that that project then continued at the Science Museum, the Bass Museum the first year, the mm -hmm. Science Museum the year that followed, and then to a bunch of schools all over Miami-Dade County where they were the kids themselves were creating their own reclamation project vertical nurseries and planting them. So a great a great example of how an art project can grow and be, become a become from a from a visual project to uh, to a, uh, a performance project yeah. that becomes that leads a bioremediation project. Yeah. Art has a job to do. And you did something similar with gentrification, right? In the sense that you um, tell me about how you addressed that with it was like a picture of lost places. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a that's a piece that's in the permanent collection of Pam. Uh, uh, the Prince Art Museum here. Yeah, it was Mam when they uh, when we did it, but mm. in 2006, you remember I, the only place I've called home is Miami. So there's a thousand places where memories have been made so I told you about that uh, school that I went to mm -hmm. right um, that school is now an asphalt parking lot right there behind uh, Jesuit Catholic Church in downtown Miami okay. so I took a picture of an asphalt parking lot I printed it on a yellow uh, card stock I wrapped it in cellophane and then I put a caption to that picture I made it look like one of those 1950s old postcards mm. but it's a present-day photo in 2006 of an asphalt parking lot and the caption read nuns taught me how to read here oh, it's a wow. school but it's not a school it's a parking lot and that happened time and time again All the old drive-in on, on Bird Road was now a Best Buy and I would and you know and I don't know if you remember the drive-in, but you used to be a, a flea market and my older brother and I bought eight tracks there so here you have you know there's a Best Buy and it says, you know, Charlie and I bought eight tracks at this flea market and you're looking at Best Buy where our drive-in theater was. So it was a way of helping us understand how development, because it was, if you remember Miami in 2006, right before the 2008, people were freaking out. You would get lost driving around Miami because your landmarks would disappear. Right. So I took 180 photos and installed them as an installation called Absence of Place. The Miami Herald did a column on that and then invited their viewers to create their own absence of places. Mm. So we then created an exhibit at the lobby of the Herald building, which then existed. If right. I were to do absence yeah. of place redux, that I would, would take a picture. Well. I yeah. would take a picture of that empty lot right at the at the edge of the water and mm. say the uh, readers of the Miami Herald exhibited their photos of Absence Miami in this lobby. And there's no lobby, there's no Herald, it's just that. So uh, I think in many ways it talks about how how change is happening. The, the problem I see with the change that's happening, and one thing that I'm trying to address as an art artist, is the rapid change in two directions. The people who used to play and uh, live in places like Shenandoah and Little Havana now have to commute from, two, take a two hour commute just to drive to work, literally to the places where they grew up because they've been displaced. And those are the lucky ones. Those are the ones that can still afford housing in Miami. So many more are living in 
Lehigh and 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 uh, and uh, Cape Coral or in North Carolina. So there's it's, a, it's less so about dis- a nostalgia and more of like a a reality of what does displacement look like? Right. What is a, what is a community displaced? look like what are the effects and then there's displacement that's in place it's those people who live in miami especially those areas impacted by heat we did a huge climate project in miami this summer trying to aware, uh, raise awareness about the immediacy the problem of heat in miami how did County. you show that how did you show the, the well problem initially heat? i did it in 2016 again in hialeah by having elderly fry eggs on a solar panel along with a uh Uh, a panel discussion by the Red Cross and the Union of Concerned Scientists, my premise there was, okay, if you think you'll be dead by the time sea level rise happens, you can die from heat stroke at 3 p.m. That was 2016, uh, except that this past summer has been the hottest summer in all of recorded history. There has never been a hotter... Time to fry more eggs for people and put it on the radar. What I did this time is created an art exhibit at the Coral Gables Museum. We partnered with the chief heat officer in Miami. We created a series of convenings. We just had one at Gables Congregational Church two nights ago um, to try to change the laws so that our outdoor workers get enough water, shade, and rest. And that, that ordinance is coming at the end of this month in front of the county commission. Fortunately, it looks like there's some broad support for that. So let me ask you this. with your, uh, You obviously are making art because you care. How do you remain optimistic? I, I, I know I don't sound it in the way I talk about all the problems around us, but I do believe in this. I believe in people. And I, I the same way that I grew up with the most desperate of realities mm. around me, I found a way of transcending that, right? I found a way of believing, using approaches to make things better. And this all I try to like, do as an here's, artist... Here's what I did with, with my trauma and the problems that yeah. I faced in my life, and here's how I could... Right, I leaned I, in. Yeah. I leaned in. I didn't shy away from that burn patient. I didn't shy away from... The, the you know the you know the, the people who the, my family the people across society in fact I tried to address and solve the problem in other words no challenge was too big for me and what I try to do with my art is inspire people spark conversations have them think differently but most importantly model uh, creative approaches to problem solving mm. and I try to do that with artists as I was telling you a second earlier at, at that Melander Center, there was an art exhibit, but that was the least important thing I did there. Mm. The other thing I did is I convened 12 panels, one for each day of the Paris Talks, where I brought scientists who spoke specifically about issues that impacted Hialeah so that we could have a conversation with the community. They were already in the room, just like you bring them in with cookies, I brought them in with art. Mm. And then, most importantly, I created all these participatory activities, these experiential activities, for them themselves to be the agents, for them themselves to have the agency to solve the problem. We did some simple, silly things. Like we talked a bunch of FPNL bills, made air, paper airplanes, hmm. and shot them in the sky I'd like as to a do way of saying, FPL you know, bill. that <laughs> your utility bills keep on going up along with the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And we had an underwater flotilla with people's property values, you know, like your homes will go underwater. But we also had interactive things. We've planted thousands of trees across Miami-Dade County, hundreds of wildflower gardens, acres of mangroves, right? Uh, We've done all sorts of eco-actions through the Seahorse Society to engage in eco-actions to stop 
uh, the environmental degradation of Biscayne Bay. So there's all these things that I do through my foundation. I created a foundation to advance these ideas and with our, with our volunteers and interns to model and create pathways for Miamians to be the leaders that we need to be. And that's what gives me hope. And this idea that, um, I love this idea that you create art and it doesn't really matter to you if it doesn't make a difference is what it feels like. Like you're making, uh, you're making art because you feel it can make a difference. So I, I, it matters to me that the art makes a difference, but the difference I'm trying to make is a difference in other. My only life purpose isn't to make art. Is to, my life purpose is to create a cadre of citizens who love one another. Xavier, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. It's been great getting to talk with you about you and your work and what you're trying to do with, uh, with it. Love being here. Thank you, Carlos. Our guest today was the artist Xavier Cortada. He's Miami-Dade County's first artist-in-residence and a professor at the University of Miami. And that's Sundown for Thursday, September 7th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio and Sundown's engineer. Welcome back, Peter. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at GoPalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, her children's book was named one of the best by the New York Times in 2021. Her new children's book, The Walk, shows kids how voting can bring friends, family, and neighbors together. Author Winsome Bingham joins us. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.